All right. Well, we are uh, on page 63 of the notes. Uh, most of you have the handout, which is great. So, again, we're, we're not yet at the point of talking about uh, confrontation. That'll be uh, next week. So last week we talked about forgiveness, uh, which we, in a sense, have to settle in our hearts even before we talk to the other person. Remember, we talked about the transactional forgiveness versus attitudinal forgiveness. And so before we confront someone, we, have, we, we should have an attitude of forgiveness so that when we you know, confront them uh, and they ask for our forgiveness, we are ready to say, yes, I forgive you freely and joyfully, I forgive you. Uh, but we also have to contend with this reality that in the midst of a conflict, and especially if it's a protracted uh, long-term conflict, um, there is the, the possibility that bitterness can take root in our heart. And uh, I, you know, I don't know the conflicts in your life uh, or how this may work out, but uh, Scripture talks about bitterness as a root, as you see in your notes. And uh, it is something that if we don't deal with quickly, uh, and rightly, uh, it will grow and fester, or we'll think we'll deal with it, but then it'll kind of keep growing back. And so it's really, really important uh, that we deal with this. Let me read that opening paragraph. Uh, one of the most common attendant sins in conflict is bitterness. If anger is a flash in the pan, strong but temporary, bitterness is a simmering pot. It's always there, and it can boil over any time. Jim Wilson says, bitterness is what we feel when someone sins against us, whether that sin is real or imagined. In other words, bitterness is what we feel when we think someone is getting in the way of my happiness. Right. Again, that's, that's when we continue to, to have that thought over the course of time. Good morning, folks. Uh, this is important. Scripture talks about bitterness in Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slam, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So as, as Paul is talking there in the broader context about not living as Gentiles, uh, putting off the sin in our lives, one of the sins that he commands us to put off is bitterness. Uh, alongside all of those other anger and conflict uh, related sins. We have to put it off. We have to put it away from us. We have to take it off. Uh, or Hebrews 12, verse 15, where it says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. So here we have a couple kind of thoughts that, that rise out of the text. Number one, that bitterness is a root. Uh, that it's something that grows kind of deep into our souls. And it, on the external, uh, in the outside, it produces fruit. It both grips us internally, kind of wraps around our heart, uh, causing us to, to think in certain ways, have certain attitudes and certain perspectives. Uh, and then it produces fruit on the outside that uh, then are, are seen and felt by other people. And so here's just a sample list of the kinds of root and fruit that, that bitterness produces. Number one is impatience with others. Uh, you can know that there's bitterness in you when you are impatient with the sins of others, especially someone who has sinned against you. Uh, when you just can't put up with their sin anymore, you're just 
you can't tolerate one more instance of, of their sin or their weakness. Uh, or you're ir- irritable, irritable toward others. Uh, where just, you know, you're always on edge. Same idea as patience, I guess, but uh, a stronger force of quick to anger. Uh, explosive, you have explosive anger at any time. That, you know, the smallest things can set you off uh, because uh, you, you're just always simmering on the inside. A more of an internal uh, root is the malice that we can have toward others. That we can actually desire evil for others. We want bad things to happen to others. Uh, we want them to feel pain. We want them to feel the consequences or experience the consequences uh, of sin or uh, just bad things to happen. So that, And you know that happens when something bad does happen. We think in our minds, yeah, they deserve that. right? That's, that's malice. That's desiring evil uh, for someone. Uh, disrespect toward uh, the, the person that has sinned against you, where you just can't even engage with them in a respectful way. You, when you see them in the hallway, uh, you know, when you're just at home, you're just co- constantly disrespectful in how you engage with them, how you either ignore them or the words that you say to them. Uh, all your interaction is characterized by disrespect. Uh, perhaps there's jealousy. That when someone has sinned against you, uh, when something good happens to them, you're jealous. Well, why does that happen to them? Why, why do good things happen to them and nothing good is happening to me? Uh, or, you know, wh- when they're, you know, they get that new car or they get that job promotion or, you know, they, whatever it is that's going well in their life, uh, there's jealousy in the heart produced by bitterness. Uh, there can be depression and self-pity. That you're so consumed by the, the angry thoughts toward others that you're just inwardly uh, depressed and hopeless and your life is terrible. Uh, you can't get past uh, the sin that's being committed against you. And you believe you don't deserve it and it, it shouldn't be happening and, and you just are filled with thoughts of hopelessness. Uh, there can be rebellion against the Lord. That as much as you think you're in the right, you, you sin against God in a variety of ways, uh, just out of a root of bitterness. And, you know, it gets to the point where you stop being able to connect the bitterness you feel in light of someone's sins with the manifestations in your life. It almost starts to look like there's completely separate things going on when all of it really comes back to bitterness in the soul. Uh, you can have suspicion toward others that because of maybe how one person has sinned against you now, you, when you look at other people, you begin to suspect that maybe they're also sinners the same way that other person is or that they struggle with the same things. Uh, this can happen uh, like you know, a, a woman who you know, has a couple bad dating experiences and now she's like, oh, all men are like that. <laughs> You know, or vice versa with, with men thinking that all women are a certain way because they experience something with one or two uh, women. And that's, that's a sign of bitterness. And so that goes along with assuming the worst about others, just being quick, that your first instinct is whatever you perceive, whatever you hear, you put the, the worst twist on it because you can't think well about others. <laughs> Again, bitterness, it's like it wraps itself around the heart 
and it affects everything that comes out. It affects your perspective, your, your perceptions, it affects your actions, your words, your attitudes, and it makes it very difficult uh, to love others and, of course, impossible to truly love God. I've seen this so many times, and you know, not as a way of discounting sin that's been committed against people, but uh, after sin has been committed against someone, I've seen them just cultivate and, and really harbor and feed bitterness in their heart and have that result in a way of thinking, in a way of responding to their circumstances, um, in a way that's really destructive and not helpful. And so we must adhere to what the Scripture says to, uh, to root out that bitterness, to, to put it away from us, to not let it grow and fester in our souls. Now think about people in Scripture who are identified as being bitter. You have Jonah there. How is, how is Jonah bitter? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Jonah was bitter because God was going to forgive the people of Nineveh. Now why would that be something to be bitter about? He didn't think they deserved it. Yeah, he didn't think they deserved it. Plain and simple. I mean, they were wicked people. And you know, Scripture doesn't go into all the details, but uh, we know historically that they were incredibly wicked, vile people. And Jonah, he was really hoping that God was going to destroy them. He was hoping that as a prophet, uh, you know, once he actually got there and preached, uh, that uh, it's almost like he was gladly proclaiming destruction on them. Um, But the reason he was so hesitant to even go there to begin with is because he knew the character of God, that God is a forgiving and a gracious God. And so, you know, after he preached, you know, he goes off to the hillside to look over the city and, and he realizes, okay, I guess that destruction is not going to come. And so he gets bitter. He gets bitter over the fact that God is not judging this people who are an enemy of Israel. Uh, what about Naomi in the book of Ruth? Why was Naomi bitter? She said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. She lost her husband and her children. Yeah. So who is she bitter toward? God. Yeah. Yeah. She was bitter toward the Lord because life didn't go the way she had hoped. She And, you know, granted, she lost her husband, for goodness sake. She lost her sons. Probably the, the three most people, the three closest people in her life, you know, whom she dearly loved. So genuine suffering, right? And we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to, uh, speak against the grief that she felt that she would she was right to grieve the problem is she went beyond grieving and cultivated bitterness toward the providence of God in her life now in the grace of God of course he uh, worked good for her through Ruth uh, and Boaz but but for a time she was full of bitterness what about Saul King Saul how is he bitter? I have a passage there. That there's probably a variety of things you could point to, but that one in particular. That David would become king. Yeah, that his line was over, that he had been rejected. That would certainly be one reason to become bitter. That's not the passage that's identified there, but that would be that would be a good answer. You look like you want to say something, Levi. <laughs> Are you thinking? Okay. Because of the people were praising him for the Yeah, so the first Samuel 18, 8 and 9 there is when the people were saying, 
Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands, right? So Saul was bitter that he was not getting as much attention as David. And so there's the jealousy component of bitterness, that he's like, hey, he's having more success than I am. He's getting more attention than I am. Even though David had done nothing wrong, right? He, had, he was only faithful to Saul, but he cultivated bitterness and suspicion uh, in, in his eyes. And then the Pharisees in John 11. Remember, John 11 is the chapter that focuses on the resurrection of Lazarus. And at the end of the chapter, it says that the Pharisees, you know, that they plotted together. What was it about what had transpired that cultivated, led them to cultivate bitterness? So what they explicitly said is, all the people are going to go after him. If if he's raising the dead, you know, he's going to become more popular than we are. Right, so it's kind of same thing as Saul, uh, and so in jealousy, they plotted together to murder Jesus. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those accounts that highlights the irrationality and insanity of sin. You know, there Jesus is raising the dead, <laughs> and they're thinking. We can't let this guy keep doing this, (laughs) right? Instead of bowing the knee and saying, you must be the Messiah. They're like, you know, we got to stop this guy from from doing the kinds of things that God does and and proving himself to be the Messiah. That's the blindness of the human heart. And that is often what bitterness does is it's blinding to us that we we cultivate anger and and jealousy and suspicion all, you know, wrapped up as bitterness in our heart toward another person irrationally you know what starts out as as perhaps hurt legitimate hurt over the sin that's what is committed against you uh, can transform into anger or perhaps both of those are together and and there might be a, a righteous indignation right if someone has truly sinned against you but when cultivated in the flesh that then can turn into a sinful anger and that then festers uh, into bitterness and then all of a sudden you lose rationality you actually become insane because you can't see reality for what it is yeah Helen um, for 48 Genesis, I'm sorry John 11 48 they actually had a legitimate reason in 48 not 47 what, sorry what does it say um, if we let him go on like this, all the people will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take over both our places and our nation. Yeah. They were tasked to keep the peace between the Romans and the people. So they sort of kind of had a legitimate reason, but that wasn't like a big reason. Yeah, I, I think the best way to understand what they're thinking there is they want to stay in power. Okay. Uh, so they just don't want the Romans to, to take over. I mean, certainly there's the concern of if there's a riot... Uh, if, if the people are, are toppling over the ruling class, then the Romans are going to say, hey, you guys aren't, aren't managing things well, so we're going to take over. So I guess you could say that's a legitimate thing, but the heart behind that is we want to stay in power. So, yeah. Could you repeat what you just said about not thinking rationally anymore and going insane? Yeah, so when we get to a place of bitterness in our heart, the way in which I would argue that we start to go irrational, become irrational, is we start to interpret events or the, the things that people say 
Uh, we look at their actions and we start to attribute to them things that aren't true. Motivations, um, you know, intentions, malice. Uh, you know, we start to think they're just out to get us. We start to think life isn't fair. You know, God isn't good to me. Uh, how injustice is happening. We just, there's all different kinds of thoughts. And of course, every situation is different in, in what's going on there. But we start to think wrongly and, and make judgments and calculations that just aren't true. Uh, and, you know, we, we start to think of the other person uh, irrationally as characterized by their sin. So we, we only see them, you know, in, in the color of their sin rather than seeing them as person made in the image of God, who is far more than their sin. You know, they're a complete person. They're a saint, a sufferer, a sinner, not just a sinner. Uh, but everything that we see from them says sin, 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 sin. You know, we can't acknowledge that there's any possible possibility of growth and change. Uh, you know, like in, in a marriage situation, that's often what I see is one spouse will look at the other and, and deny the possibility that their spouse can change. There can be all kinds of evidences of change. And they'll look at that evidence and say, I don't believe it. <laughs> and now there are times when, you know, obviously you, there needs to be wisdom. But, um, and there needs to be sustained uh, proof that the change is genuine. You know, so I don't want to sugarcoat it. But, but the bitter person will say, it's not even possible. There is no hope that this person can change because they are who they are and they're always going to be that way. I think that's an irrational thought. Um, uh, I, I've heard it said, uh, I have no grace for this person. No grace. And when you get to that place where you're so hardened in your heart toward the other person that you cannot allow any measure of grace, then we've gone beyond uh, where, where God would go, right? Uh, someone can sin and sin and sin egregiously throughout their life. And of course, um, there are clear differences between God's relationship with us and our relationship with others. But if a person genuinely repents and seeks forgiveness from God, he will always extend grace to them. No one ever gets beyond the reach of his mercy. And so if we say, if we say, nope, you are beyond the reach of grace and mercy, then we have placed ourselves above God. And that's, that's not clear thinking. So we have to be very careful, right? We want to be wise for sure. Um, you know, when someone has not just sinned once, but there's been a pattern of sin, we, we do want to be wise and not like, oh, they said I'm sorry, so now, you know, everything's forgiven. You know, one of the things we talked about with conf- with um, confession is um, that the person who is confessing their sin has to acknowledge, or sorry, accept the consequences, one of the seven A's of confession. And one of the consequences often is a time of rebuilding trust and proving the genuineness of their repentance. And so in some cases there needs to be that and and the person who is forgiving needs to uh, recognize that it is going to be a process. But if we won't even allow that process to start, then I think we're, we're showing a hardness of heart. Does that help?
okay, well, how can we get to the place where we root out bitterness? How do we do this? It, you know, I hadn't thought of it in these terms before, but what are you know what's the pesticide that we can spray on our heart that kills the root of bitterness? Well, there's six principles that I think we can meditate on in our own heart. Um, and you know, in your notes, you just have the principles and the the scripture verses. So we'll walk through these. The first principle to kill the root of bitterness is to meditate on the enormity of God's love displayed on the cross. These are all points on of meditation. These are all things that we need to think about, uh, patterns of thought that we need to, to have. Uh, we've mentioned Matthew 18 a little bit, but just as a reminder, Jesus gives this parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. So in the, in the, in the vein of, of meditating on the enormity of God's love displayed at the cross, one of the things that we can do is meditate on the forgiveness that we have received from God. Christ, uh, that the Father has granted to us through Christ, perhaps I should say, that our sin, if we can put it this way, our sin against God is infinitely more than the sin that this person has sinned against me. Uh, one way to picture it, uh, if you were to put the comparison of the 10,000 talents uh, of that the one slave owed to the king and the hundred denarii that the that his fellow slave owed to him. So, um, just trying to see how most of you can see this. So, the one hundred denarii would be about one inch. Okay, we're, I'm going to put this in terms of length. A one inch. All right, that would be one inch of of debt. Whereas the sin against the slave, or against the king, the, the debt that, that the slave owed against the king, this line, to be proportionate to this line, the purple line would have to be 11 miles high. Our sin against each other is about one inch compared to the 11 miles of our sin against God. You know, and just so you can get a picture of that distance... If you think in terms of you're going to be walking the distance, <laughs> uh, if, you, if, if you think about the sins that other people commit against you, uh, just think about one inch. <laughs> okay, versus the sin that you have committed against God, that would be like walking from here, Hope Bible Church, to BWI Airport. Okay, on a walk, right? So that, that is the comparison that Jesus is making. And that's not a um, kind of a trick of the mind. Like I got to trick myself into thinking that my sins are greater against God than this other person's sins against me. That that is reality. <laughs> and so we need to rightly understand the gravity of our sin 
and the extent of our sin and the impact of our sin against God. And yet, how freely and fully and completely we have been forgiven. Now you could, we could spend a, you know, a whole lot of time talking about how Christ, the second member of the Trinity, you know, as we talked about in Philippians 2, how He left the, the glorious presence of the Father and the Spirit, that eternal unity and bond of love and joy. And He came to this earth and lived you know, as, as among the lowest class of society and then walked and taught and was mocked and ridiculed and disbelieved. And people betrayed him and left him. And, and then, of course, he was unjustly arrested and illegally tried and crucified. All the things that he experienced, none of it deserved. All of it in infinite comparison to the glory that he deserved to have in heaven. Uh, he did all of that for our forgiveness. He traveled that infinite distance for us. And so he calls us in light of what he's done for us, the forgiveness he's purchased for us to forgive others. But we need to meditate and rightly understand as fully as we can the enormity of his love for us. Last week we talked about uh, Colossians 2:13 and 14, when you were dead in your transgressions and sin, Excuse me, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So all of our sin, our infinite debt against the Father, all of the consequences that our sin deserved, all of that he's wiped clean having nailed it to the cross of Christ. Or Ephesians 2, all the same truth here. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Just pause there. Again, we need to understand what our sin was, what, what it meant. And even if you were saved at four or five years old, <laughs> uh, don't think that, uh, hey, you lived a sinful life, but then you made the choice and you saved yourself and you were smart enough and you, know, you came to Christ. Uh, no, 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 don't take credit for your salvation. So even if you were saved young, even if you were saved at a point where you had not you know, engaged in egregious or gross sin, as we might consider, you know, drug addicts and prostitutes and, you know, whatever else we would put on that list, murderers. Uh, even if none of that was true of you, the, all, you had the same capacity for sure of sinfulness. Your heart was hostile to God. And had God not saved you, you likely would have continued to sin in worse and worse ways uh, in your life. And so would I. And so... Uh, we have nothing to boast in of our life before Christ. We'll talk about that this morning in the message. Um, we lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. It's only by God's grace that we weren't worse sinners than we were. 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. Right? He emphasizes that God did not set his love on us when he saw, wow, those are really wonderful people to love. (laughs) He said, um, even when we were dead in our transgressions, that's when he loved us. Or as he says in Romans 5, even while we are sinners, Christ died for us, right? And so God set his love on us while we were sinning against him, while we were hostile to him, while we were fully deserving of his wrath, and yet he exhibited love, poured out riches of his mercy and kindness, and seated us together with Christ, made us alive in him, seated us with him in the heavenly places, all of that. I I think if we just spent, you know, Minutes, hours, meditating on this, studying the scripture. What is the reality of my sin? Uh, Who am I really as a sinner before God? What do I come to God with? What do I bring to the table? Of course, it's nothing and it's, it's worse than nothing. Again, we'll talk more about that in the message this morning from Philippians 3. Uh, and yet, God has loved me. God has forgiven me. He has been gracious to me. That alone should put us in a position where we just, we can't hold sin against others because of the enormity of what we have experienced. And that goes back to the principle of Matthew 18, that the king charges that slave, I forgave you all that debt. How could you not also have forgiven the other slave? There's just a natural response to the forgiveness and the love of Christ that should move us to be forgiving toward others and not grow in bitterness. Well, along the same lines, the next principle is to meditate on your desperate need for God's forgiveness. Romans 3, 9-12, what then? Are we any better than they? This is a passage that refers to the nature of unbelievers. Are Jews any better than Gentiles? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. So again, as as we stood before God apart from Christ, before Christ, we were not good. We didn't seek for God. Uh, We were useless in God's kingdom. Uh, We didn't understand. We were not righteous. We hated God. That's how desperate of a situation we are. We we could do nothing. We wanted to do nothing to move toward God uh, to receive his forgiveness. We were hostile to him. Of course, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. And if you put that together with Romans 3, 9 to 12, he's definitely not saying, hey, we're all trying really hard, but we just can't quite make it to God's standard, right? No, he's not saying that we've fallen short in the sense of we're making an effort, 
but we're just not getting all the way there. No, we're not even making an effort. Uh, we are utterly short of the, uh, the glory of God. And then because of that, we deserve death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So because of our depraved condition, because of our sin, we deserve death. Ezekiel 18 emphasizes this point. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment of the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So you and I, before Christ and apart from Christ, we were in a condition where we deserve to die. Our sin had piled on us, and it didn't take much to, to get us in that position, really just uh, one sin, or you could say not even that, just the fact that we're sinners by nature, that we are under the curse of sin, that we deserve to die. And what we desperately needed was forgiveness. We didn't desperately need to make better choices in life. We didn't desperately need to uh, worship God and go to church and uh, do certain things in life. What we desperately needed was God's forgiveness. And of course, he granted that to us. The third thing we can meditate on is our ultimate need for God's mercy. And this is just kind of different angles of looking at the same thing. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Um, the first part where it says the Lord's loving kindnesses, some translations say the Lord's mercies uh, never cease. Uh, we, he has poured out his loving kindness because we are so desperately in need of it. Uh, James 2.13, For judgment will be merciless, so the one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, before and apart from Christ, that's the context we need to think about, we deserved no mercy because we have shown no mercy. But we desperately need it, and that's what Jesus portrays in Luke 18. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? Mercy is not getting what you deserved. Uh, we deserve judgment, we deserve punishment, we deserve eternity in hell. And God's mercy is saying, I'm not going to give that to you. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. That's what we are desperately in need of. And so as we think about a person who has sinned against us, instead of thinking about them as someone who needs to be condemned and someone who needs to be judged and someone who is in a position to uh, kind of wallow even before us and seek our forgiveness, we should really set ourselves alongside them before the cross as equally in need of forgiveness, equally in need of mercy, equally in need of salvation. We need to recognize that we are fellow sinners more than we are you know, a victim or someone who has been sinned against. That's true, and we don't need to discount that, but we're even more fundamentally fellow sinners in need of God's grace. Another thing we can meditate on is God's role and your role. What does God expect of you 
when you're in the position of being sinned against. Well, James 4 says there's only one law that giver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Right? God is the judge. He, he is the one who has all the facts. Uh, he has all the information. He doesn't really need a courtroom. He doesn't need lawyers to present evidence. He, he knows it all, and he's righteous, and he's just, and he's good. And so he will deal with the matter perfectly. Uh, whereas we have limited information, limited facts, limited perspective. Uh, we, we are not perfectly just. Uh, we, we want what we want uh, apart from what is fair and right. And so we are not in the place to judge others. That's not the role that God has given us. Romans 14, 4, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now there in that context, he's talking about differences of opinion on what we might call matters of Christian freedom. Uh, Should you drink wine? Should you eat meat sacrificed to idols? You know, things that Christians legitimately have disagreements on. Instead of judging each other and saying, you're a sinner for doing what you're doing, we should say, hey, that's between them and the Lord. The Lord will deal with that. The Lord will address their own heart in his own way, in his own time. And if they're truly a believer, you know, that's that's for the Lord to deal with, not, not for me. Or you think about Joseph's attitude in Genesis 50, where his brothers were afraid that Joseph, now that his dad was dead, was going to you know, come down on his brothers and condemn them and punish them. And yet he said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? So Joseph, who legitimately had the power to condemn and to judge these men who had legitimately sinned against him, uh, he recognized that was not his place. That was God's role to bring justice in that situation. And then finally, Romans 12, 19 and 20, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So here we have both roles. You know, so far, all the, all the passages, the previous three passages have said, you know, God's the judge, not you. God's the judge, not you. God's the judge, not you. This one says, God's the judge, but here's what you can do. <laughs> and what can you do? If you see your enemy... Having some need, hungry, thirsty, you know, they, they need something in their life. Be the one to meet that need. Uh, consider how you can be a blessing to that person who is your enemy. How can you encourage them? How can you speak well to them? How can you bless them? Uh, what can you do that would be kind and generous and gracious that's the role that God gives us toward our enemies. That's how God wants us to reflect His character toward our enemies, right? And Jesus talks about that in Matthew five forty four to forty eight around there. That you know, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And He's talking about how God loves His enemies, and so He calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Yeah, Owen. I had a question about that in terms of the judgment. Um, so we're supposed to confront those who sin against us by showing them the word and showing them what their sin is. Is it the judgment in terms of after the fact, like 
their punishment that God will give them? Or, I mean, you know what I'm, I guess I'm trying yeah. to figure out the, how that translates. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. So, when we th- think about the, the judgment of God that this is talking about here versus our responsibility to go come alongside others who have sinned against us and confront them of their sin, um, there's a judicial judgment of, uh, you know, I'm going to find you guilty, uh, or I do find you guilty, and here's the punishment that's going to be handed down. That's God's role. Our responsibility... Uh, is to come alongside them and um, kind of appeal to them and help them to see their sin with the aim of calling them to repentance. So we don't come as as a judge. We come as a fellow sinner saved by grace, uh, help trying to help them see where they have erred, where they need to repent and have a right, uh, a restored relationship to God, have a restored relationship to us. So we're coming to them more as a friend, if you will, than, than as a judge. Say again? Yeah, even using rebuking or exhorting, um, you know, confronting. But our, our role, again, is not that of a, a judge where we come to someone, and we'll talk about this in more detail next week, but we, we don't come saying, you did this, therefore here's the consequences, you know, and that, that's it. Um, Rather, we come and, you know, sometimes uh, we do need to be straightforward in our confrontation uh, where we are just very direct and, hey, this is clearly what you did. This is wrong. Um, uh, And that, you know, requires wisdom to know when is that appropriate, when is that necessary. Uh, And then there are other times where we are tentative in our confrontation in the sense of, acknowledging our own limited understanding and perspective like maybe I'm misunderstanding maybe I I misperceive the situation but here's what I'm concerned about whatever the case uh, we're coming to them with the hope of restoring the relationship it's a relational uh, restoration rather than a judicial condemnation the problem is we tend to put ourselves in the judge role and say we're we're going to condemn this person and so that's what we're seeking to avoid and so the, the purpose of us uh, doing good, of you know, giving them something to drink, feeding them, uh, or meeting needs, being a blessing to them, loving them, all has the, the goal of showing them the, the love of Christ, where we can appeal to them and draw them back into a relationship uh, where they see their sin and come to a place of repentance. Uh, Milton Vincent is a pastor in California, who's uh, teaching on this issue, even this particular passage has been uh, very significant in my own thinking. And he, he talks about how, uh, you know, in our, in our own flesh, when we're sinned against and we're fostering, you know, anger and bitterness, uh, we think that the most powerful thing that we can do is uh, to give them a piece of our mind, right? We, we want to say words. We want to treat them in ways that, that we think will help them come to realize how significant their sin is, the hurt that they've caused, and that if we can just say the right thing or or treat them in a way that that shows the the um, you know the, the pain they've caused, uh, somehow they will come to realize, oh my goodness, I've sinned so grievously, you know, and fall before us, you know, you are so right and I'm so wrong, you know, that that kind of thing. 
Uh, and, and so we can rehearse those kinds of conversations in our minds. Uh, but then when they come out in front of that person, what they tend to do is be destructive, <laughs> right? It just makes things worse. Whereas the more powerful thing in reality is when we have been on the receiving end of sin, when we respond with love and grace and kindness and blessing and goodness, that is like, whoa, where did that come from? Why are they treating me that way? Uh, and obviously not in every situation, but, but that in reality is more powerful because that's unexpected. People expect when they've sinned against us, they, they expect to be sinned against back. That's the way of the world. Unbelievers certainly expect that. You know, tip for tat, retaliation, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, all of that kind of stuff. But when we respond with, with kindness and love and grace and goodness and generosity, it's like they don't, they don't know what to do with that. That becomes the more memorable and powerful act because... It was so unexpected. And in the contrast of your behavior toward them versus their behavior toward you is so great that it, it helps them to see in reality the grievousness of their sin uh, because they are certainly not treating you the way you are treating them. So that's, that's a powerful way that God has given us. He, he hasn't given us a weak, uh, silly you know, lazy way of responding to the sins of others. He's given us a powerful way to respond. So we have to think about that. We have to meditate. Okay, what is God's role in this situation? And what is my role? How, how can I exhibit the grace and the love of Christ uh, to this person who sinned against me? Fourth, or fifth, we can meditate on the dual nature of the offender's sin. Namely, that their sin is more against God than it is against you. Again, that Romans 3, 12, 10, 12 passage, I won't read that again. But as we think about what is the nature of sin, even if it's something that someone has done towards you, whether they've said things to you or they've treated you in a certain way, they're not violating your law. right? You're not the, the law giver of the universe that they have violated. They violated God's law. God is the one who commands them to love him and love you. God is the one who has commanded them to treat you a particular way and all the manifestations of what it means to love one another. And so they violated God's law. And so their sin is first and foremost against law. That's why David could say, even though he had sinned against Bathsheba and he had sinned against Uriah, he had really sinned against the nation, uh, yet he could say to God, against you and you only have I sinned, uh, Psalm 51. So we need to recognize that, that their sin, as much as it has been aimed at us, as much as it has had an impact on us, uh, it's first and foremost against God. First uh, John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Right, you think about a, a thief who you know, breaks into a store, steals merchandise, you know, runs away, eventually gets caught. Who's the one who does the judging? Who's the one who hands out the consequences? Well, it's not the store owner, right? It's the law. It's, it's the government who has established the law of thou shalt not steal. 
In the same way, we're in that position of the store owner where there might be, in some cases, uh, um, restitution if you know something's been uh, broken or, or money's been stolen or something like that. But really, the consequences come from the law giver. And sometimes that means that there are leftover consequences that we experience. You think about that same store owner. They might get their merchandise back, but the government's not going to give them money for replacing the windows that were broken or the, you know, the merchandise cases that were destroyed. Uh, the government, government's not going to give them money for the security cameras that they're going to install. Uh, when we are sinned against, there are a variety of kinds of consequences that we have to absorb from that person's sin. It could be emotional consequences. It could be material consequences that, uh, that we don't get back from that person. And uh, that's part of what forgiveness entails is saying, I'm going to absorb those things and I'm not going to hold those things against you because uh, you have sinned against God and his law, not against me and my law. Proverbs 5.22 uh, says, His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. You know, if, if anything, and again, this requires supernatural help to, to think this way, in, in addition to whatever hurt we might feel being on the receiving end of the sins of others, we should be concerned for them because they are caught, they're trapped in, this, in their sin. That's what he means by being held with the cords of, of his sin. Uh, they're stuck. And if they don't get unstuck, if they don't come to repentance, then God will bring judgment to them. You know, it's like uh, Paul says in Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual should restore such a one. Meaning if anyone's trapped in sin, if they're caught in the net of their own sin, uh, help them get out. Don't beat them over the head and kick them while they're down. And, you know, oh, yeah, you know, that's, that's what they deserve. Uh, no, help them. And so when, when we're sinned against, as much as, as we might feel significant uh, pain, sorrow, consequences for the sins that others have committed against us, uh, we should, in our own heart, be concerned about their sin and the fact that they're caught in their sin. You know, it's like Jesus when he was hanging on the cross and he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He knew that unless they came to a place of repentance, this was going to have eternal consequences for them. Stephen, when he was martyred, said the same thing. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And so that's an that's a attitude that we can have as we consider the fact that their sin is more against God than it is against us. And then finally, meditate on your own fallibility. Meditate on your own fallibility. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Don't ever think that you are incapable of committing the same sins that others have committed. You and I are capable of committing any sin that anyone else is capable of committing. You and I, just like adulterers, have the capacity for adultery. You and I, just like murderers, have the capacity for murder. Uh, It's the grace of God 
that keeps us from committing sins that we don't. Uh, it's time and circumstance, all, of course, governed by the grace of God. Uh, it's um, the, the ministry of the Spirit in our lives, withholding us from going down a, a pattern of sin that would ultimately lead to a more serious sin. We all have the same capacity for any sin. And one of the things that bitterness produces in us is this thought of, I would never do what this person has done. Right? I would never say what this person has said. I would never go as far as this person has gone. And the reality is that is not true. Given the right circumstances, <laughs> given the right situation, we would do exactly what they did. And so we need to recognize our own fallibility. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And then I already mentioned Galatians 6 there, but uh, going on from there, uh, he says, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Right. One of the challenges of uh, ministering to others, like in a counseling role, like I do, and, and some others do in the church, is you get to hear about a lot of the ways that people sin against each other, <laughs> ways that you know has never crossed your mind, <laughs> uh, things that you know in your own experience have not happened to you, and things that you have not thought about committing yourself, and. Um, there are times when, in, if, if we are not walking by the Spirit, where the flesh could say, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what that's all about. Right? I mean, the world is full of iniquity. There's immeasurable or innumerable ways in which people sin. And the, the flesh can be curious. Right? And so we have to be careful that uh, we do not allow um, the sins of others to draw us into their own sin. Uh, as if by doing so, we would be able to help them more. Well, maybe if I understood why they did this, maybe I could help them come out of it. You know, that, that is just uh, not a, a right way of thinking. So we have to look to ourselves, he said, so that you too will not be tempted. Again, don't ever think that you are incapable of committing the worst sins that others have committed against you or the sins that are out there in the world. There was one time I was talking to someone who um, I did not believe to be dangerous, but it was a situation where uh, he expressed his intentions in a metaphor, which I, I was pretty sure I understood to be nonviolent, but it's, you know, sometimes you remove a statement from a context and you could interpret that a whole lot of different ways. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I've learned as a counselor, you, you, you get specific. <laughs> don't live in metaphor, don't live in vagueness. So I asked him, what do you mean by this? What are you actually planning to do? And thankfully, you know, he, he expressed specifically what it was and it wasn't a violent thing. Uh, but it very well could have, right? Uh, given another person in another situation, he could have said the exact same thing it meant. I'm going to go home and I'm going to get my gun and I'm going to, you know, whatever. Uh, and, you know, we might say, how could someone do that? Right? We hear about these shootings all the time. How could someone do that? It is not hard. I haven't tried. <laughs> but it is not hard. 
All you have to do is go down a path of sin. Just take several steps down the path of anger and bitterness, cultivating suspicion. And I think this is the right way to do justice because the government's not going to be just. And, And before you know it, you're planning and plotting to destroy the lives of others who are even innocent in a matter. We are all capable of that apart from the grace of Christ. And so we need to recognize our fallibility and our vulnerability to sin uh, so that we don't judge the other person as if they are far more of a sinner than we are. So meditating on these things, the, the, the way that God has treated us in our sin, God's role in our own sinfulness, really should put us in a place of compassion, put us in a place of mercy, so that when we do confront someone, we're confronting them out of love and out of kindness and and a desire to see them restored to a right relationship rather than out of a place of condemnation and judgment. And I can't believe you did this. And how could you do that? Right? So it's it's all about cultivating a a godly, Christ-like attitude toward the other person rather than hardening your heart toward them and toward others. Okay, we have some time. Uh, any any particular questions or thoughts? Yeah, Carson. Um, what if in a situation where you have sinned against a person uh, and they're an unbeliever and they are bitter about it, do you go with these same things, I guess, to keep that? Because it can be difficult to try to, to reconcile the situation. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so what I would say is any time someone sins against us, and sometimes that sin is simply they're not accepting our repentance, and so they're cultivating bitterness toward us, we have that temptation to cultivate bitterness at their bitterness. (laughs) And so wherever we find ourselves in a situation where we're not reconciled with someone, we have to guard against bitterness. Uh, And especially when they're an unbeliever, recognizing yeah, they don't have the spirit of Christ. They don't. They have haven't experienced Christ's forgiveness. So, uh, I need to guard my heart and recognize that they're just acting out of their own nature, and I, that should make me even more compassionate toward them because they're, um, you know, they're lost in their sin. And apart from Christ saving them, they're not going to be able to overcome their bitterness. They're not going to be able to reconcile uh, or have a you know, restored relationship. And, and so, you want to cultivate the love of Christ. And I think what you're reflecting is how many of us can sometimes think about others. You know, hey, I'm always the one on the giving end, and now they're, they're, all they're doing is asking for me to give more. You know, they're never kind of reciprocating, and so we start to question the legitimacy of the relationship, and should we keep giving? So, the passage is in Matthew 7, and it comes right after uh, Jesus says, uh, gives the, uh, you know, take the log out of your own eye, then you can see the speck out of your brother's eye. That's verse 5. Verse 6, do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Um, just in summary fashion, I think what he's saying there is even in our efforts to uh, reconcile with others and you know getting out of our uh, getting the log out of our own eye confessing our sin and confronting others uh, we do have to be wise because there are times when someone is so hardened in their sin it's it's just not worth it 
uh, it's not wise to try and confront them over their sin because they're just not in a place uh, where where that's uh, a legitimate use of, of time and energy. And um, I'm probably not going to be able to think of a situation off the top of my head, but I would just say whatever the situation would be, there, there's just manifest evidence that there's hard-heartedness and unwilling to listen uh, and that they're just, um, you know, they're not thinking clearly. Um, I want to be careful with with that language uh, in the sense that I think that I think it could be ter- uh, used uh, too often. The, the term narcissist, um, and you know, a narcissist is someone who is kind of a habitually self-seeking, self-oriented person to the point where they're not able to see uh, others in proper light. Everything is is about them. They don't take any responsibility. Right, no responsibility. And they put that responsibility on you as right. if it were your fault. Right. And so when you approach them right. and say, hey, these are the things you've done, they blow it out of proportion and say, no, it's you. Right, right. right. Yeah, and the only thing I want to just be cautious about that is um, and again, wisdom is needed in these kinds of situations. But um, I always want to be careful to label someone that I have a personal relationship with, and that's maybe the key that I have a personal relationship with, as if they're hopeless, and I'm, I'm never going to be able to break through that perspective. Now, that may be true, and it may be that I've man, I've tried twenty times, twenty different situations, and every time they're just you know, turning right around and, and blaming me for their own sin, whatever it is. And so maybe you do get to that point where you're like, okay, I, I, this is clearly where they're at and then there's nothing that I can say to change their mind. And, and so, you know, you know that enough where, where that becomes the case. But um, I guess I just know my own self too much, how much of a sinner that I am that I, I just, I, I never, as much as I can, I want to withhold um, I want to uphold the possibility yeah. that maybe this time the Lord will work in their life, right? Um, I don't think you ever truly give up hope. Continue to pray for them. And yeah, their heart changes, sure. But at the same time, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and so uh, so there are those times. Maybe maybe let let me phrase it this way: I want to be careful with labeling someone in a certain way. I may be thinking in my mind that there are certain ways of engaging and. There's a, a hard hardness, hard heartedness that's there, that you know maybe it's not wise for me to keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. Um, but I don't think it's helpful to people to then slap a label on them. And I, I'm not saying that that's what you're no, saying, uh, but that happens all the time. I mean, I hear it. You know, husband and wife sitting next to each other. He's a narcissist. She's a narcissist. You know, it's like that is not helpful. <laughs> um, and so I, that's why I always get like cautious when, when that term is used. But wh- whatever the situation is, when there's a pretty clear evidence that there's, there's no openness to hearing the truth, there's no openness for them to acknowledge their own sin, then we have to say, well, they're in the Lord's hands. Uh, I give them over to the Lord. Uh, kind of like last week, I, I, I forgive them in my heart before the Lord, and the Lord's going to have to deal with them because they're clearly not in a place where, where they're going to receive from me. But how do we engage with that person? I think that's where Romans 12, 19 comes in. If they're hungry, thir- 
feed them. If they're thirsty, give them some a drink. Love your enemy, be kind to them, pray for them, do good to them, bless them, uh, and see how the Lord might work in their life. Um, and I think God, in terms of how long we do that, the uh, indications in Scripture is we do that for as long as we possibly can until we die or they die, or you know, other reasons separate us. Any other questions before we close out? All right, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. I don't. Again, I don't know all of your lives. I don't know what you've gone through. Uh, the ways that people sin against each other, the ways that we sin against each other, can be grievous, and it can be difficult to even hear some of these things. To try and put, you know, to, to even think about putting our sin in light of God's. Uh, forgiveness of us um, you know because we don't want to minimize the sins that others have committed against us but uh, these are the things that I believe God really calls us to as, as believers so let's pray